and the Big Light Network are delighted to present Bleathered Live. Please welcome your host, Sean McDonald. Is anybody else shouting or is it just me? Just me. Thanks very much, everybody, for coming, spending your money, coming out on a Friday night. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have got a list of people I'm going to thank, and I've got a terrible memory. Everybody who's bought a ticket, thank you. Give yourselves a round of applause. Uh, my guests for taking part tonight. We're going to have a great chat, I'm sure. Uh, I want to thank friends, family, Jen, everybody who's supported me. To be able to be doing this is amazing. The Big Light, Fiona White, Janice Forsyth have been amazing. Uh, Brian McAlpine, he's the voice you hear at the start, you just heard there, Unsung Hero. Everybody at DF Concerts in St. Luke's for, for having me here and all the staff that are working tonight. How are we? I've, um, I don't know if you've seen, I've been working on a documentary, I've been doing more TV work and all that, I've been, got my column, all these things, the podcast things are going great. And it's very easy to, to get ahead of yourself, of your head to get a wee bit big. Uh, so, what I do is uh, I read all the nasty messages I get sent. <laughs> now, because your head can't get too big. You'll need to move the drinks, by the way. So, I've got a wee list. It's not that big, but it's basically the messages I've been sent. One or two, move that. Right, I'm going to read them out, right? There's just a few. You're a terracotta attention seeker. Right. Terracotta. Right, okay, I'll give you that bit. Attention seeker. Nah, fuck that. You're nothing but a jumped up, arrogant little fucking posh boy. Your show is shite. Right. Jumped up, arrogant posh boy. So I went through and I, I spoke to my chef and my gardener and I was like, do you think I'm arrogant and jumped up? <sighs> I don't know what they said, I don't really listen to those cunts to be honest. Um, <laughs> genuinely right, this isn't even a joke, walking in here the night and I just heard, oh prick. I was like, that's, not, that's obviously not for me. Oh prick. So I stopped, right? Just said, you might have a show at St. Luke's, but you're nothing but a fucking little dickhead. <laughs> I turned in and I just went, Mum, not the night, come out of fuck. <laughs> so, that'll keep my feet on the ground. But we'll get to the, I'm going to have to just chuck that down, there you go, that's for you, right? I'll sign that later. So, we've got two great guests, um, and hopefully a good night of conversation. We'll have a wee Q&A and stuff and we can ask some questions. But please give a very warm welcome to my first guest, Darren McGarvey.
Jamie. We need to pretend we've not just sat backstage for an hour. Do I need to move the mic? Uh, I just get yourself comfy. Do you want some water? I'm good, Anne. Have you paid for it? <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hi. Right, is that all right? Yeah. That'll do. Cool. Fuck. I've interviewed you twice. I've got nothing to say. It's just, I just, I'm used to people just looking at me and going, fuck. <laughs> Is that usually your three-year-old? <laughs> First thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Right. There'll be people, there'll maybe a few people that don't know you, but I doubt it. But we don't want to go over too much ground, but it's good to have a wee refresher. Now, the Herald very recently called you the standout, authentic voice of a generation, but before you were that, you were a wee guy in Pollock. <laughs> Give me a sort of rough idea of just kind of what the world was like for you, home life, how the world felt in general. Uh, well, I mean, just I come, I come for a scheme in the south side. A lot of you will be familiar with schemes in Glasgow. Uh, so, I mean, Pollock was at the top and the bottom of all the wrong league tables. Uh, when I was growing up in the 80s. And uh, so, I mean, I experienced the kind of life a lot of, of us experienced at that time, which mm. was a kind of mix of positive, funny, community, um, having good working-class values instilled in you, and then just chaos and alcoholism and neglect and fear and, um, and, and, and building up a kind of debt of problems that really hit you in your... Mm-hmm. Uh, late teens when you suddenly become overnight responsible. <laughs> so really, um, I think I got into writing and music and all that because I think I had to express a lot of the stuff that had happened or a lot, what my, or rather the meaning that I had made of a lot of the stuff that had happened. It's funny you mentioned that because I wanted to talk about your early school uh, drama class, like in plays that you did, where they knew one you like pretend to be a tree and you're like, fuck off, mate, we're going to talk about self-harm, alcoholism and drugs. <laughs> like, Theatre is a form of self-harm. Aye, uh, but was that, was that like a method, a process in what was happening? Well, it was interesting because in a working class community, there's not a lot of people that are into theatre or dance or music. Mm. Um, and so you, you, you get a feeling straight away that you, you've got to kind of stand your ground just to be who you are. I mean, I like the game of football and, uh, and and a lot of the, the, the other things, other pastimes associated with youth. But I was always just trying to get back to finish my song, do you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. I was always trying to get back to the house to finish a scene I was writing. Or I mean, I was recording podcasts on a transistor, on a tape recorder, radio cassette deck, you press, press play and record on it, and you can record vocals into it. So I, when I was like seven years old, Aye. I was just using whatever was around me today the things that I wanted today in my envy world. Um, but when you get older, you, you feel pressure from other people in the community who, you know, maybe don't get that kind of encouragement mm-hmm. or, or they've been raised to think, you know, we, people like us don't read books or people like us don't do drama or theatre, that's gay. You know, everything's gay aye, back then, aye. wasn't it? Like, yep. like gay was a bad thing. I know. And, 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 you know, and it falls out with that frame of reference. So it was like, I think it was good character building for me because it, ta- it taught me very early on, um, you know, your life is a struggle. Um, you've got to rise to that challenge uh, mm-hmm. whatever way you can. And, and I think as much as I don't struggle as much now, I mean, it's funny you mentioned in the Herald, you know, they've not always said nice things about me. It's interesting when you get 
stamped with a degree of legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folk do a 180, do you know what I mean? And it's like, it, it's interesting. I remember people who I had met. Uh, apologies for anybody who doesn't actually know who I am, by the way, because you must think this guy's very self-important. <laughs> and I am. But there are some reasons that might explain it. But uh, the, 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 the interesting thing was, I'd always been kicking about the BBC on and off since I was 17 years old. Mm. You know what I mean? I presented two radio shows on Radio Scotland when I was a kid. And I just couldn't get my head together, you know what I mean? I couldn't deal with being in the West End. I couldn't deal with knowing I was getting judged for wearing a hoodie and talking the way that I talk. And uh, so there was a lot of folk I met. But then after the book came out and the Orwell Prize and getting nominated for this, that and the next thing. And, uh, and, I, and I remember bumping into people who I'd met before and they all spoke to me as if it was the first time they'd met me. And it was just interesting, mm. do you know what I mean? Because it's like you... you, you, you it, it tells you something about what's valued in a certain institutional culture, do you know what I mean? Like a media or a BBC. Mm-hmm. And it's good to just bring that scheme mentality into that other environment. Because in my scheme, I'm not thought of as a dangerous or threatening person. But in a media environment, everybody thinks I'm just about to say about them. <laughs> and so I guess it's like the way that a woman might, you know, sometimes yeah. implement her sexuality in a certain situation. You're aware of it. Mm-hmm. You're aware that you can use it to your advantage. And so, in, 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 in my experience, I've learned to use other people's preconceptions about me because of how I talk or because mm-hmm. of how I dress to sort of create a wee bit of wriggle room for myself professionally. It's a form of currency, isn't it? Like the way that you dress or the way that you speak. It's sort of an initial indicator of here's how much I should respect this person as opposed to, well, let me get to know this person and then we'll find out if he's a prick or not. Aye. Um, I want to talk about, you mentioned life being a struggle, and I wanted to touch on the quicksand theory that we've spoken about before, because I find it really interesting, because you're talking about people who, you had a very strong role model in your dad, um, and other ones around you, but you had some chaotic ones as well, plus the general area you're growing up in, and what happens, it becomes this, like, amalgamation of chaos learning and being stuck in the same place. I, I'll, I'll allow you to allow you as if like, you should fucking thank me. It's your show. But, hey, if, you tell, show. if you can explain about your quicksand theory, because I'm really fascinated by it and how then when we talk about equality isn't really equality. If somebody from Mogai and somebody from Pollock are getting the same opportunity, it's not the same because that person's already 10 feet back. Hi, exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of what was revealed with that exam algorithm scandal uh, was, 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 you know, that, that sense that a lot of us have that no matter how hard we work, we won't get as much an opportunity as somebody for a better off area. Uh, that the exam algorithm theory, which proved that kids from working class communities were being more highly moderated in terms of their exam results. So if a lassie gets five A's, then they look at the five A's and then they go, what are the, uh, the average marks historic to this postcode? And then they bring her down to B's and C's. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you've got people who talk about, just work hard, it's a meritocracy we live in. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got education, the labour market, all these institutions that are basically designed, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. to, 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 to feed to feed the uh, people from middle class backgrounds towards opportunities that don't involve arduous work and manual labour and poverty. Don't worry, it's not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a trade unionist or anything. <laughs> I, know, I can start sounding like that, nothing more scary, eh? Um, but, but, but generally speaking, when I talk about the analogy of quicksand, what I'm getting at is 
the assumption on the part of politicians and middle class people sometimes in academics is that kids from poorer backgrounds lack aspiration. But there's been studies done that show if you ask kids from a posh background and a schemey background at the age of five what they want to do with their life, they all say the same things. Mm. It's when they get older, something happens to them. And so the kids from the poorer backgrounds, they modify their expectations based on their experience of what it's like trying to move up the social ladder and, and education. And so when, when, when they look at somebody, when you're in quicksand, what do you do to stay alive? You have to stay still. You can't take a risk. You can't be like, oh, I think I'll start a fucking business. You know <laughs> what I mean? You're in the quicksand. You can't fucking, you can't move anyway. You've got to stay still. But for a distance, people who are, are, are from more privileged backgrounds, they don't get that part of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because they, they think that their experience is universal and they are also, while not being able to see the disadvantages people from poorer backgrounds face, they are unable to see the advantages they benefit from as well. So a lot of the structural advantages they benefit from, they attribute to them personally. Mm -hmm. They think, oh man, I'm the Prime Minister, I'm Boris Johnson, I must be really fucking smart. And there's not a lot of evidence for that hypothesis. No. Very much to the contrary. Even with we small wee things like the minutiae of people's, um, I don't know, like their prejudices. Like, so if I'm down in London and I meet somebody who is aware of Glasgow and they're like, whereabouts are you from? And I'll say, Rob Royston. They go, oh, bit rough there. And I'm like, well, point to I'm like, and I'll point to the map. I'm like, you think they're Royston, you prick. It's like two miles away. And there's nothing wrong with being for Royston, but that is what, that's what you're thinking of. So you can't even get the right area. I've never paid council, I've not lived in Rob Royston to pay council tax, but I start shouting about the highest council tax band in Glasgow, not as if I've ever paid it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was something else, I, quicksand, I was going to say as well, just as a, an aside, if car cartoons made me think quicksand would be a bigger problem in my life than it actually ever turned out to be. <laughs> <laughs> Never, never actually seen it. I'm like, you better watch, man. I might well, be quicksand here. The whole quicksand thing comes out of sometimes, you know, when you hear academics talking about these kind of theories, they talk about it in a way that people switch off because they're, they're, they're interpreting data and then they're trying to translate data just into basic English for other academics. So sometimes the ideas, even though they're quite simple, get lost on people. And, and so I think as a writer, you're trying to find a way to distill it into not just understandable language, but create an image or a picture to show the way, like a filmmaker might, you know, a filmmaker might have a scene which is a metaphor for some other thing, and then uh, you can absorb it better, mm. and it stays with you. I mean, part of the reason why you remember it is because it's all right as an analogy. Do you know what I mean? It speaks to your experience, yeah. and then it's kind of fixed in your head. Moving on to, I didn't know, like shit, I didn't know you were on TV that early. So how, how did that come about, like those early things? Because radio. Radio? Aye, aye. How, how does that happen? Because that does seem like the unattainable. Like even, I remember when I first got asked to, it was Janice Forsyth's show, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, I've unlocked some magic thing. Aye, aye. Well, that was what, well, first of all, Janice is a really solid person in Scottish media generally. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the first time I got, the first time I got uh, asked on, it was actually because my auntie Rosie, was doing a lot of media. MSP Rosie Kane, was it? But before that, she was an activist and a campaigner, environmentalist, and she had uh, two asylum seekers living with her for about a year. Right. Um, 
and so she was doing she was doing uh, media related to that. And then one time back then it was the anti-social behaviour agenda, the ASBO agenda. Do you know what I mean? Hug a hoodie and all that. Aye, aye. So it was like they got me on to talk about that. They got me on to talk about the postcode lottery and all that. And I think basically what media news media is, they've got a phone book and they they do everything based on convenience, right? So if you're at the top of the phone book that day, you get phoned, mm. and if you can do it, you're on it. And for as long as you turn up and do the thing, you'll be the person that gets phoned. And so basically, once they realised that I, 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 that I could string a sentence together without defecating myself, which I'm sure surprised them, <laughs> um, then then uh, did they, somebody check? I just became. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> uh, they, they, then I just became a kind of I don't know. I became a kind of token working class voice in Aye. media, and uh, but I wasn't aware of all that at the time. So I just went, I just rolled with the punches because I saw it was a good opportunity and it was a good thing to go back to my mates and, and, and talk about, do you know what I mean? Like, and uh, it was good, it was a good experience at the time. I was going to say, did you strategize and think, right, because I remember when the first thing I got asked to do, I was like, if I don't mess this up and if I'm all right and I say, call a Tory and arsehole, I might get invited back on. Did you strategize or did you just think, I'll just go with it and just see how it goes? No, no, I did, I did strategize, but I, I didn't realize that I, I had been conditioned to strategize from an early age because mm. of the chaos I grew up in. So I became very emotionally literate. So I, I, I able to go into a room and really, it's really just oversensitivity. You mm -hmm. know, the negative side of it, it's oversensitivity. But if you can wield it a wee bit, then what, what it gives you is, it gives you an ability to assess what the temperature is in an, in an interaction or an altercation. Uh, being able to subconsciously analyse somebody's body language, their gaze direction, um, uh, whether they're being authentic or no. And and uh, and so, as much as that kind of accumulates as a bit of a racing brain, which means it's kind of hard sometimes to focus, mm -hmm. uh, I always found I was very good at moving between different social spheres where the demands on me were different. So working in a prison, working on a street corner, <coughs> uh, being at a middle class event, a corporate event, an arts organisation, I was always able to move between these eight different areas with ease and I was always dealing with people who would judge my communication skills despite the fact they never moved out of their sphere. So they thought they could communicate better than me even though they only ever communicated with people like them. Mm -hmm. And uh, being able to just kind of make those observations as you go. So my strategy really was just people don't see me coming. They don't see me coming. So it means that I have that advantage of knowing what I'm going into and then having an element of surprise. Yeah. And, and as long as I'm no steaming drunk, um, then uh, I can manage most situations pretty well. Even if I feel nervous or I feel angry, I can always just kind of have a level of composure. It's Because we were speaking about that as well. There's like this social sophistication that comes from knowing how to avoid getting jumped in the street. Because yep. we spoke about it... Um, if you're crossed, if you come from a certain area, if you're crossing a street, your brain does about 50 calculations in a split second to go, if I cross too fast, these boys are going to think I've shot myself. Yep. If I cross too late, they're going to think I'm challenging them. Yep. If I don't look at them at all, they're going to think I'm scared. If I look at them just enough, but I pull the right facial expression, we've not really got any problems. Ask them the time. Aye. And if Wait, they why? ask you for a fag, give them two. And if they ask you for, you get them bevy, don't. And do you know what? See if, see if you take that approach to the young guys in your scheme. I still live in a scheme. Aye, and be sound right? So they, they might call you a fanny for not getting their bevy when they're 12. But see, <laughs> when they're building a boot in their 20s in the scheme and they're the bigger guys, 
uh, and they've all got alcohol problems. Do remember you? No getting them the baby. And and uh, but give them as many fags as they want. Give them double the cigarettes they ask Right, for. but I don't smoke, so I'm going to be like, I don't know. And my mum says, and she's like, "That's that fags. Do you smoke?" And I'll be like, "Currency." <laughs> Save I, me that, getting a down. That was just. I mean, it's, it's you. You. You've remembered a lot for your conversations previously. Like it's that's another way of 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 when I use that example of making all those subconscious assessments as you're navigating a kind of potentially hostile community. What I'm trying to show is that um, kids who present as challenging or as illiterate or as, as, as aggressive, um, there's a level of emotional sophistication at play within them all the time, which is is, is, is very, very high level. Um, the sort of tasks that they're performing mentally all the time, mm-hmm. uh, just to ward off the threat of violence. And, 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 and we don't have a system that can acknowledge and value those skills. So what we do is we put them in a mainstream classroom and we use social cues that frighten them mm. to try and incentivize them in an education setting. Yeah. And then we punish them into the prison system. And, 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 and it's all because the so-called sophisticated people in our society who run it, they don't see that. Because they're never, they're never close enough to it, see it. Existing within the paradigms of their own sort of experience. We only you know, know what we know. You, you put me in, you're saying about kids reacting a certain way. There's something that I'm going to speak about with our next guest. Something that Karen said, uh, which is that hurt people hurt people and when you see somebody lashing out in a certain way that more often than not there is something even in a sort of like I say in a snide way if somebody's horrible to me I'll be like I hope whatever it is it's going through your brain or life or whatever sorts itself out and I will go on to talk about that later where I've realised that I, I shouldn't really say that in a snide way as like an ins- it's like a passive aggressive insult Aye. and I've kind of become aware of well, I shouldn't really weaponise that against somebody because there probably is something Unless they're really fucking horrible and they can fuck off. Uh, <laughs> um, we all have limits, though. <laughs> exactly. Uh, was the Scotsman your first sort of writing gig, 2016? No, uh, my first writing gig was Bella Caledonia. Oh, shit, I, 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 the so indie rest stuff. I did basically long rants on Facebook. And then, See, uh, I, I had to say, I saw your rants on Facebook and then I think I saw early podcast. It was essentially podcast. I, and I was like... That'll never catch That'll on, never really, I don't like. <laughs> Just kicking good doors, mate. Oh, right, I hope aye. So basically, it was one of the ones where I had a lot to say, um, but I didn't always have a platform yeah. to say it. And then, uh, and then what happened was I got a few blogs from Mike Small at Bella Caledonia, and then um, a writer by the name of Denise Miner, um, who's a lovely person and a very successful writer, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she 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 encouraged me, and basically it was her that put the idea in my head to write a book, because I'd never thought that I could, and so she said, "Have you ever thought about writing a book?" Because I was writing articles about culture. I wrote about the art school. My take on the art school file. I remember one. that that was one of the first things I, I saw. So my take. I didn't realise because it just felt like it just felt natural to me. So I didn't realise what a controversy it would cause Aye. with all the artists or, or, or the other artists, right? <laughs> and so rich basically ones. I was like, what you all greeting for, man? School's burned down all the time when I come there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all it's like, usually me excited about fire. Oh, but this was the art school. So <laughs> if he's fucking cared about it, you said I looked after it, shut up. <laughs> 
And then I'm, I'm watching the fucking news and he's all acting like it's 9 11. Calm down, everybody. Do you know what I mean? Farquad, Farquad, this building's burning down. Up. They loved it. Even the people that disagreed with it, it was like a form of pornography for them. Do you know what I mean? They just couldn't take their eyes off it. <laughs> just this guy sitting in a bucket hat in his living room talking to the camera. Do you know what I mean? And basically, it just happened that, you know, you get a few people with big followers retweet you. Yeah. And that starts a wee bit of momentum. So maybe Lemmy will give you. It was Lemmy in the beginning. Did retweets and even. We love Lemmy. And Lemmy did his own sort of pastiche on it, didn't aye, he? Aye, aye. And then exactly. And then it was other ones. And then basically, so I started creating an audience, and that led to me getting a job with STV. Right. Okay. And then before you had a thing called cancel culture, I got cancelled for <laughs> wrote. A stupid hang I wrote, you know what I mean? To yeah. be fair, it was a stupid hang. It wouldn't have got past an editor with experience, but mm-hmm. I didn't understand. I didn't understand how it could have been misconstrued, and an editor was supposed to point that out. So anyway, I dealt with all that, and then I got a job at the Scotsman writing a column every week, and now, uh, and now I'm at the Daily Record. And you, uh, TV and stuff, because you do like question time. You're on debate night the other night. I thought you were excellent. Was that just a natural progression for you? Because we will talk about like class wars and stuff, but taking that leap because there is a whole other factor to it, like being aware of how you're looking and stuff. And well, I come from hip hop, in particular battle rapping, which is the harshest form of verbal confrontation. Is it just you like you're more on steroids? It's basically, it's basically one module away from scrapping. <laughs> right. So, so. When your whole when your whole skill set has been framed in that kind of environment, yeah. going on the telly with Hamza Yousaf doesn't really seem that much of a fucking stretch. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I've never been on the telly with him, but I'm just using him as an example of an Aye. effective politician who's very clever, very good at communicating, who does not intimidate me in the slightest. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm going on there, I'm not frightened of the people on the panel. I'm frightened of the audience. I'm frightened mm. of my peers in the audience because... That's who lives in my head rent free. If there's a vanity about me, the vanity is this conception in my mind of working class people watching, thinking he sold us out. That's what I'm worried about. And sometimes I think maybe that's a good thing. You know what I mean? Maybe that's a good thing sometimes as long as you don't let it preoccupy everything you do because you can't please everybody. But there's always a part of me that goes in there. And I was saying this to uh, some of the people, Patrick Harvey backstage at the thing, Socially distanced, obviously. He's a government minister now, do you know what I mean? He's a minister for plants. <laughs> Can you just imagine Sturgeon sitting him down, you know? Have a seat, Patrick. I'm going to make you minister for plants. Get my wee greenhouse at Holyrood Palace. So anyway, I was explaining just... I was just, I was just explaining, like, fucking... We're just chatting about it, but the, the, the basic thing is when you're, when, you're, when you're in that kind of environment, I'm thinking... How do I channel what my assessment of what ordinary folk would want to say? So that's my agenda. And so you can see the discomfort among the other people that I'm on with. Because their agenda is I have a party line to toe or don't say it in stupid or don't show emotion. And every time I go on, I always have this idea in my mind of I'm going to stay calm. Because getting angry is how you get dismissed in that realm. Mm -hmm. They interpret passion as anger because they are emotionally restrained all the time. And so... When I will go on there, I'm always going on because I'm, I want to be calm and I always tell a daily mantras before I go on, I hand over my ego to the universe and all this pish and then... Are you the sure you're The fucking minute the microphone comes to me, mate, I'm fucking... <laughs> <laughs> it's 
like a black hoot, right? Fuck it, Stephen Jordan on your back. He's no up. It's he's like no a black hoot, and I'm like, and you're cunts, and you're fucking. Don't get me started on this Tory bastard, right? And the thing is, that's why they're getting me on the telly. That's Aye. why they're asking me on, because they know I'm lively, right? But I black out, it's something else, something else takes over, so something else takes the wheel for a few minutes. It's no ego, it's yeah. something more deep rooted than that. And then I kind of come to within myself, and I'm like, oh, you're shouting again. <laughs> <laughs> you like to the person behind you, what happened there anyway, what we talked about? But you look ruining the politicians, they're all like... White knuckles hold out the table, like... Mummy, you're going to have to pick me up. See what you're saying about um, rap battles, like that, preparing you. <laughs> I'm going to see if like John McKay wants to meet up, me and him will have like, a slanging match just to get me prepared, because I get a wee bit nervous sometimes. Because, uh, yeah. I don't know, you're just aware of... I think it's you're aware of, right, and if it's a podcast set and it's just me and you. I don't know if you've realised, but there's fucking hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah, it's a good uh, You're kind of just aware of these eyes. You should be chuffed, by the way. This is some achievement. You're doing uh, really well. Sorry, thanks very much. <laughs> Cost me... I've, none, none of them have paid for a ticket. They're all free. I was giving them away. <laughs> Standing outside well, Central. You can tell they're here to see you. Uh, they're here to see... No, I'm just saying. Um, your mum paid for a ticket. <laughs> I see she's also paid for a lot of fucking drinks. Can we stop serving her at those? But what I mean is... What yeah, I, don't, I, mean I don't come into your work at McDonald's and tell you to stop thinking. That's terrible, I shouldn't have said it. What there's I mean nothing is, wrong with working at McDonald's, it's just a punchline. He's trying to deflect a compliment. Let, let me <laughs> so listen, what I mean is, like, you know, Karen or me or some other folk, we'll be used to doing events and going out and everybody's there to see us mm. and they don't really care about the person that's hosting it and they might not even know the person that's hosting it and they're grateful if it's a good host like yourself. Thank but you. everybody's here mostly to see you and then whoever else you're inviting on is kind of like a bonus. Do you know what I mean? So, mm. like, that says something. That's good. That's a good position to be in. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly payments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash leathered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Forget About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Forget About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoy this episode, share it, because it's a great help. Cheers. I won't spend too much time on this, but I th this was really interesting because just you were saying you were heavily involved or entrenched in the independence movement, Bella Caledonia. I'll read a quote out to you. It's something you've said. As I mean, and this is about aligning yourself too closely to any group or movement. That's something I've, I've learned for you get your fingers burned because when things come back around, there's people waiting for you. But you said, as a minor public figure, I was part of the independence movement. I was closely aligned with a political campaign until I realised it was impairing my ability to think objectively about what was going on. And you basically went on to say, you either tow the party line, and the minute you don't, you're discarded and flung out. How did that develop in your life? Well, basically it came from an artist, uh, an artist perspective at first. So my um, involvement early in the independence campaign was my role as a musician and creating music that spoke to political themes that I felt were important, right? So I was always a political rap artist, really. 
and uh, and so there was another artist collective at the time called National Collective, and uh, they were kind of like the official Yes Movement artists. Mm. And uh, I thought, well, brilliant, finally I've found a bunch of other political artists because it's kind of lonely in the hip-hop scene where people respect me and I'm known, but I can't go to the local rap gig and chat politics, do you know what I mean? Because a lot of the other rappers, they're doing a different style of hip-hop, do you know what I mean? And so I was like, brilliant. But then the, the, the minute that I tried to interact with this organisation, almost from day one, something was off, just wasn't it right. Because I thought that they were doing this because they wanted artistic freedom to really go there with issues. Mm -hmm. But everything I'd done, they thought it was controversial. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I made this concept album called Government Issue Music Protest. And I wrote it in 2013-14. And basically, it's a, co it's a concept album which, which uh, it begins with a terrorist attack, right? Which is the final scene. And then the rest of the album plays leading up to that scene. And there's all sorts of different things that happen in it. Um, it's set in the future in a place called New Glasgow, right? So it borrows for a lot of popular science fiction, but really talks to the specific independence issue. But there was one song I'd done called Tommy Sheridan is Dead, right? And it was a metaphor. It was this idea that in the future, Tommy Sheridan dies. He was a big symbol of hope and socialism and schemes for a long time, mm -hmm. right? And then he wasn't so much after a certain kind of controversy. And so what I was trying to do was create a metaphor about that, right? This idea that him dying causes, creates a riot in the slums of this new Glasgow, which leads to a kind of uprising. And, uh, but the song talks about things that happen in the future, right? So in 2014, the song talks about us leaving the EU. It talks about surveillance society. Things that you can predict if you're following the trends, yeah. right? But there was one thing in it which was controversial, and I sought a lot of advice about it. Um, and it was basically, it was this idea, this quite dystopian idea that Madeleine McCann resurfaces in the future, right? So she's fu she resurfaces in the future, so she was just basically taken in by somebody, and then she discovers, so she's a woman, right, mm. in this future. And so the line was basically pointing to, she's a woman in the future, she, she abandons her parents, she doesn't want to know them, she feels abandoned by them. And then the media that, that, that mined her story and her family's story for years, for clicks and front pages, they immediately sexualise her because she's of a certain age mm -hmm. and attractiveness. And uh, that was quite a bold artistic statement to make for a young man like mm -hmm. me. Um, and, uh, and, and people just didn't want to do it. They didn't want to touch it. They were like, no, this is going to end up in the Daily Mail. We can't be associated with this. So I was like, hang on, they use the artists. I thought you were the hardcore political artists, man. You're fannies. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you why. And uh, basically just got into a big ding-dong with them, you know what I mean? After the independence thing was over. Mm -hmm. But it was good because they ended up just folding and stopping doing what they were doing. Because I think they lost a lot of credibility. And the guy that was in charge of it is yeah. the SNP's chief online strategist, funnily enough. All right. Sorry, I know I was a bit boring. <laughs> I think I know him, but, but I don't want to. It's just, it's like, you know... Um, to, to come back to sort of current things, you're fiercely critical of the Scottish government, which I think is a positive thing. Um, nobody intention of derailing, but the intention of kind of holding them accountable and stuff. How do you get pissed off when people do try and paint you as a bit of a cheerleader? Because it really is, and we'll talk about why, a recent example of why it just isn't the truth. Well, I mean, people base their opinion on you on their own bias, which is understandable. So if somebody is, a, 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 if you're talking about like a Tory, 
they're going to see every week that you're no criticising the Scottish government, yeah. which is maybe like one month, one week a month, and they're going to they're the only articles they're going to see. So you that article you might talk about the the uh, the Tories, right? So you might talk about the recent advent of Tories who have taken legal aid away for people, who have taken benefits money away for people, who who suddenly now think, you, you know, if they don't have second and third jobs, how are they going to survive? You know, so you might write about that irony. And uh, then you've got a bunch of Tories going, well, what about this? And pointing to a Scottish government thing. And you're just like, mate, I'm actually taking a break for criticising the Scottish government. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I try to be kind of even-handed as much as I can. I've got my own biases. I mean, deep down, there's a really angry, rabid, mad, revolutionary socialist burrowed deep, deep within all my self-interest, all my economic needs and imperatives, mm -hmm. how I like to present myself socially. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I try to let that come through in certain uh, spots and intervals because I know it's off-putting if you're just on all the time. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, ah, <laughs> burn it all down. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, switch off and watch the only way is Essex now and again. What? Who does that? I realise <laughs> as well. No, 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 me. What are you talking about? I realise as well that as much as maybe some people from my kind of end of the political spectrum would maybe prefer if I did use my platform to be more conventionally angry all the time, yeah. actually, that's a toxic emotional state for me to be in. Yeah. So okay. I actually have to like look after myself and, 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 and work hard counterintuitively to say, oh, well, what is this Tory's point of view? Because it's part of my physical and spiritual constitution to try and be empathetic to other people, even if I don't like them or agree with them. Yeah, I'm just I'm just remembering because I watched your uh, video about the Janie Godley thing, when you were sort of talking about the whole cancel culture or shaming culture. But it's probably a more accurate way of putting it. And you were saying that even if you don't, it's, it's, it can be so easy, like this human instinct to be like, "Fuck you," and put the boot into somebody. Aye. But it's like, if we want it to stop, we actually have to stop it with the people we want to do it with. Aye. I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily. I don't have a position on cancel culture. I, t I look at every instance of so-called cancel culture and I try to examine what are the specific elements involved mm -hmm. in that. So I think sometimes people do need to be held accountable and they might be too powerful to be held accountable in conventional ways. Yeah. And that's important. Um, so basically with, with the Janie thing, I just felt there was an absence of people willing to put, take the right position in the more difficult position which was, she's bang at order for what she said. She's created a lot of bad feeling because she has a certain kind of, she had a certain kind of behavior on social media, yeah. but I don't <laughs> think that she's a bad person. And I think you can only sit in that for two or three days before you are like, I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. Uh, you know what I mean? Or I'm going to get paralytic or I'm going to fucking harm myself in some way. So I think it was two pronged. One, let's try to get the word out, the more difficult position. And plus it's a woman in the public eye. And the second thing is, uh, I was trying to let her know that I, I was showing solidarity where because sometimes it, that matters. Do you know what I mean? I, no, completely. I think it, there's, you can condemn something and say, right, something's out of order without saying, but we're also going to take you to the, the gallows and we are judge, jury, and executioner. It's like, it's got to stop at some point. Um, I feel like, you know, you say, Orwell said, everybody will have their 15 minutes of fame. Everybody should get their 15 minutes of shame because I think it would then, it would influence the way in which you interact with people. I even see things that I find quite reprehensible. And I'm about to do the same and just go full angry Aye. wee guy and I stop myself and I'm like, what is this? It's, it's adding nothing. And while I might be thinking, what am I achieving? Because I'm going, well, this person's out of order. So does that then make me 
then morally fucking pure? I don't think so. It's not really how it works. Uh, well, I mean, the whole thing was really a, a place for people to air out prior grievances because Aye. of Jerry's position on certain political issues, the trans issue, which I hope we don't get into. Fuck that. And independence, which I hope we don't get into. Fuck and that. I don't say any of these things disparagingly. Anybody's affected with either of these issues. I'm just saying... I'm taking some time out for me today Aye. to talk about things that I'm comfortable talking about. You know, with me, so, with me saying fuck that, I'll, I kind of want to add and say, like, I don't mean as if, because those two things are only worth talking well, about. We'll just it's, cancel ourselves. Aye, aye, sorry, I'll do it for you. Sorry. No, it's just more, it's like, ugh, everything's problem, already been said. We're opening our can of worms. It's a Friday night. Here's the problem with shame, right? Shame's a natural human response. It arises out of informal social controls that emerge naturally in communities and how we police each other, how we set standards behaviourally for each other, Mm -hmm. very important part of our social evolution. Then you put social media in the mix, which is a distortion of all of that. So people end up experiencing shame for a period that's far too prolonged and is natural, and a volume which is far too intense for to be healthy. And that's the issue. The issue is no, you shouldn't feel shame. It's that you shouldn't feel industrial scale shame. (laughs) Because actually... If you're trying to provoke behavioural change, people can't move into new behaviour unless they move from the shame state. It's like you're in a sort of social purgatory. It's like, right, you did this thing, you said this thing, and you better show contrition for it. You're like, right, no, I, I get what you mean, that was fucking out of order. Right, can we move on? No. And you're like, well... And then what can happen with extreme examples is you see people being pushed to, like, this far right... Because everybody's looking for... Collect or somewhere to belong and, and like safety in numbers and part of your tribe, and you're like, Well, these don't want me, well, I'll just go all the way over to these. And you kind of find, I don't know, solace in numbers. And I, I, I'd imagine that's what creates a lot of, I don't know, social well, and political our division. Is a, our beha- people say, Oh, well, it's just like the medieval public square and all that. And it's like, I know because part of the behavior on social media is a result of how social media is designed to incentivize that behaviour. Aye. So it's like... you get your a, likes and your retweets. Aye, it's, it, it's attacking our vulnerabilities. Because basically, we're all cutting a bit with a Neolithic brain that doesn't understand a lot. Aye. And, uh, and an ego that thinks it knows a hell of a lot about everything. <laughs> and so, you know, when you put us on Twitter... Schrodinger's we're Twitter exactly user. dignified, do you know what I mean? And the, the, the final thing is just the pure authentic, authenticity of all the people that come out mm-hmm. with the pitchforks. Because, you know, I, I hang about with people that are dead, dead honest about what they think and feel, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and there's no small talk. The minute you meet them, you're in a real conversation. It's like, how are you? Oh, fucking, oh, man, honestly, my head's busting, right? And, we, and we, we, we're honest about what, what we're, what's going on in our life because it helps us to stay away from getting fucking pissed, right? Yeah. And, 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 and so when you're operating with that level of honesty around you quite a lot, you see how false all that behaviour is, because on one hand, all the people, whether it's on the left or the right, that are leading the march uh, to get their next victim based on their right and the, the decent thing today, and they actually have no insight into how like o- o- ego is in driving it and resentment mm-hmm. is driving it and all these mere toxic emotions, this dark side of them, they put the front up. I'm a good person, look at me doing the good thing. Yeah. And then it's like, ah, well, let's have a wee look at your search history, smart ass. Aye, I know. Well, let's have a wee look at, let's have a wee look at how you talk to your wains, smart yeah, ass. Yeah, aye. You know, I've had people try to dig me up for stuff, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe you've got a point, fair enough. I have a wee look, and I'm like, let's do the exact same thing back to you. And you're like, you would actually have the police kick your door in for that. Aye, aye. I mean, the point is not to be perfect. The point is to be honest about the fact you're yeah. low. So exactly. when you're engaging in shame culture, unless it's something that's pretty cut and dry, like a fucking Jeffrey Epstein type of situation, <laughs> yeah. 
then, uh, you know, you've got to try and reserve judgment. I feel like I've got so many questions I could keep going and going. I'm, I'm conscious of time. We are going to have a wee break. Time's uh, just a uh, construct. Mother <laughs> <again>. <laughs> Sorry, money's money's not real. The Queen's a lizard. <laughs> um, but I thought we'll, we'll have a chance um, in the second half as well. But we're going to have... Fuck's sake. We're going to have a few questions. A wee Q&A. We've got a mic. Or does anybody have any questions? First of all, that you'd like to ask Darren. Um, I'll answer some as well if anybody has any. If not, I've got a question ready. Any questions anybody get to ask? One of you up the back here. Maybe we've got somebody with a mic. Can I see? Aye. He's obviously not that sound, is he? He just stayed here. He's just fucked off. Aye. Sorry about this. I'm glad I saw at least one hand. I was like, oh, no. Nah. Any questions? Well, good. I'm quite used to questions because I've been watching films with my three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy watching your uh, like commentary of parent life. <laughs> it's enough to make anybody make a vow of celibacy. <laughs> it's all front, man. <laughs> I love them. Hello. Oh, oh hi. How are we doing? Big fan, Darren. I just wanted to ask you a question. and Don't take this as an insult. Have you ever thought about becoming a politician and fixing these issues for the inside? Uh, no. I have thought about it, obviously, and partly because people increasingly are asking me to do it. But if you actually look at history, what you find is politicians don't necessarily bring about change. What they do is they manage change. And the change comes from outside politics, and I think that that's really where I belong. Mm. Um, this idea of prefer... We're not going to get this room to applause tipping point, are we? It's just the, I know, it's your family, basically. <laughs> uh, ba- ba- basically, it's, it's, it's like this. Somebody gets into politics because they want to change things. The process of becoming a politician moderates them to the point where they actually can't change very much. So it's a paradox. And you're just hoping that now and again the situation arises where there's enough public pressure on a politician that they can do something radical. And mm. so I, I, I'm on the outside helping to create that radical energy and momentum yeah. to channel it towards a decent politician who maybe wants to do the right thing, but is surrounded by bankers and spivs and just kind of got a sense of what yeah. is actually possible. Do you know what I mean? Because we, we, we were speaking about that through the back, that politicians will just respond to whatever media and public opinion and pressure is and who manages that public opinion, it comes from media, who it's, owns it's media. Dash, and it's like a dashboard and it? it's like a cockpit of an aeroplane, right? So the red, the light's flashing red, that's the politician's attention, taken up with that. So what we need to do on the outside is get organised so that we can become the big flashing light on the dashboard. Because if our light's flashing brighter than the bankers, then the politician's got to look at that. Because mm. their whole thing is, what can I get away with no day? Aye. So you need to put pressure on them so they know it's more politically costly to ignore your campaign than it is to ignore the wealthy and the rich people that are always looked after by politicians, whatever, whether it's left or right. And it's, it is mental because we talk about it. You know that the media, the, the, the traditional media anyway, will dictate what public opinion is. And a good example is the four-day working week. You can be... You work four days, you'll be paid the same. And we ran a, a survey and 30% of people said they don't want it. And it's like, hold on, did you understand the fucking question? <laughs> like, I don't think you did. You're getting offered an extra day off. 
like, and you you said that's because they're asking people in Mulgai and Morningside, and they're the ones that own the business. They're like, no, no, we don't want that. <laughs> uh, so it's like it's one percent said no fucking chance. <laughs> <laughs> do we have any other questions? Or are we? Yeah, here we go over here. Do we have a mic? Oh, sorry, we've got. I'll be up the back first. Apologies. Uh, Appreciate anybody who fucking stands up, man. I know. Like, ah, hang on, Where are we? Can you hear me? Ah, you can hear me. Can you hear you? Just a wee <laughs> bit, mate. Bust my fucking eardrum. <laughs> my question's, Darren, as an artist, and your perspective as an artist, in your book, I read Poverty Safari, you talked about, like, when you said that the, the girl on the bus was beautiful, and you said that all the, they all just said gay, and, like, slated you for it. From an artist's perspective, how do you deal with the opinions of others making music when you go to make a track or you go to do something? in the public eye, how do you deal with the opinions of others? Um, uh, good question. I, uh, it depends on what the opinion is. You know, a lot of times I, I, I've received criticism that's been really good for me. And when you can, when you, when you can get yourself into a place of openness about criticism, uh, then it can be the best thing. You know, um, I, 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 I get a lot of credit for TV and books and things that I do. But actually, if it wasn't for a director and a producer and an editor, then a lot of these things would look and sound quite different. So uh, when it comes to the music, that's where I still retain full control. So I rely on that criticism. Opinions that I can dismiss easily uh, are, are just like snidey opinions or people who are saying Scottish people shouldn't rap. Although hopefully I've done my bit to contribute to the needle moving on that uh, in recent years. But that's just bigotry based on, uh, well, you know, certain kinds of speech being heard on television Aye. predominantly. So you've got working class people don't realise it's a form of cultural self-harm when they're like, oh, have you got a fucking alcoholic brain injury? I listen to you talking and all that. It's like, shut up, mate. You know, you're from Birmingham. That Aye. accent's even less popular than mine. I know, rotten. Sorry, just a bunch of posh, It's just a bunch of poshos on the telly. And the thing is, their accent doesn't arise naturally out of a culture or, or in, based around geography. It arises out of institutional conditioning, that received pronunciation accent. It's 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 5% of the population that speak it. Um, but every single community in Scotland, England, Northern Ireland and in Wales understands every fucking syllable spoken. Aye. And also, the speaker of that accent is imbued with a kind of trustworthiness and authority uh, and sophistication, whether it's earned or no. That's why Boris Johnson's the Prime Minister, because he speaks a certain way and that kind of opens the door straight away yeah. in people's mind. Um, we had a question down here, I think. Have we got the mic? Yep. Sorry, got you running a bit. Okay. We'll make this the last one, then we'll have Getting a few Getting your step count up there, maybe? <laughs> I know, I hope you, you get your Fitbit on, because it doesn't count unless you've got it on. Is it on? Yeah. Um, I, I just think you're... You're really amazing. Your poverty safari was so enlightening. The perspective you've Thank got. You. That how you relate to so many people, including myself. I thought I never knew anyone with a worse background than me, but you take the biscuit. Is that an insult or a compliment? A compliment. <laughs> I mean, I'm always joking. To, I'm always joking. To have your perspective, and it's related to what you said earlier, this whole idea of hypervigilance makes you so sensitive and I work with very traumatic children because I've had that experience mm. and so I can bring a lot to that I do a lot of study around it so I'm really really um, grateful to you for that Darren I think whatever you contribute is really important and you need to keep doing it and the other Thank thing you. is you've got a new book coming out can you tell us a little bit about it I actually I will 
I'll, I'll, I'll be brief as I can. And when, um, is, it, when is it coming out? The book's out in March. Oh. No, the book's out in May. So I'm just putting the finishing touches to it uh, just now. But it's called The Social Distance Between Us. And it's basically about this theme of proximity, which is the distance between the powerful and the people on the receiving end of the decisions. So I'll give you a quick example of why it's important, right? See if you ask me, right, lady at the front, right? You say somebody asked me to describe how you look, right? I could describe it because I can see you, right? I say she's got dark hair. Um, well, I'm not going into it too much, right? <laughs> now say somebody in the back row says, describe how I fucking look. <laughs> I would need to get somebody next to you to describe it and then they would need to tell the person in front of you what you look like and then by the time the information gets to me, the errors have accumulated mm -hmm. the whole way. So it's like a kind of what you used to would call a Chinese whisper. I don't know if that's a cool thing to say now, but I'm just trying to make a, illustrate a point. Democracy works like that. That's how democracy works. A problem happens in a community, it takes years for it to be recognised as a broader problem. It gets communicated up a structure and it's filtered through loads of different cultures, political agendas, uh, to-do lists, and then it can communicate back down the structure in the form of a policy, and by the time it gets there, the conditions on the ground have changed. And so this is why social policy concocted top-down doesn't work. Yeah. And, and so basically the book is looking at that theme of proximity and that problem in relation to education, the labour market, criminal justice, um, uh, basically every other kind of cornerstone of our social landscape. Um, and then the second part of the book is applying that same theme to political ideology. So then it looks at what did the Tories get wrong and why? Uh, what does the radical left get wrong and why? Uh, what about populism? Are we missing a trick here? And then the final one is about, yeah, the final chapter is about the centrists, you know, your Tony Blair types and all that who, who, who criticise populists for advertising simple solutions to complex problems, but at the same time, they think that you can deal with social inequality um, uh, without challenging real power and without talking about class, which is about as populist as it gets, to be honest. Aye. This is, I could talk to you, obviously, for 24 hours. Um, no, you will. couldn't, man. No, I could, mate, I could. Oh, obviously, me. mate. Sounds like a fucking challenge, mate. <laughs> you'd be like, ah, fucking <laughs> rent-a-gram. You'd be like, oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ almighty, Darren. No, but it's... Take it's, a it's, line. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, what are you doing later? No, I'm joking. It's, um, I don't share. It's, um, it's been a real pleasure, as it always is. Uh, everybody, can we please have a massive round of applause for Darren? Thanks, guys. Cheers, mate. Ledge. For more information on the Blethered podcast, go to thebiglight.com forward slash blethered.